You're listening to Curious Conversations About Sex, and my name is Rog. Please be mindful that some topics might be great stuff for younger people to listen to, and some might not. Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on related topics in Australia. Find Curious Creatures and submit your questions for us to answer at curiouscreatures.biz, B-I-Z. Today we're chatting with Niati Evers and Anne Hunter. Uh, Niati, who are you? I'm a sex-positive therapist. I currently live in Portland and I studied process work uh, at the Process Work Institute in Portland and I'm also a facilitator and teach workshops and classes on sexuality. Hmm, fantastic. Great to have you with us. And Anne, who are you? A relationships coach specialising in non-monogamy, and I also happen to be involved in process-oriented psychology. Fabulous. Uh, so great to have uh, you with us as well. And so to today's question, which is, my partner and I used to have sex, but not anymore, and I'm not even sure I want to, but I still love them. Any advice? Perhaps, uh, Niati, do you have any thoughts on that one? I do, and uh, it's actually a, a topic that I'm really excited about because I'm experimenting so much with it in my own life. And the way that I'm hearing the question is something that many people grapple with, which is initially there is this incredible chemistry and passion and the sparks are flying and it's like, wow. And then, ridiculous, can't it? Right. It's like unbelievable and it just takes you over and it's effortless and, you know, it's magical. At least it can be. Can be. And then it changes, right? And especially when you're with somebody for a longer time, many people experience that, right? That, you know, sex loses its excitement or thrill or passion and now what? Yeah, so I think this is a really common issue that people are grappling with. And I think one of the things that happens is when we are in the beginning with somebody, what excites us is it's not just the physical act of having sex, it's the meaning that it has. And the meaning that it has in the beginning is I'm discovering you. I'm discovering every part of your body, how you smell, how you taste, how you feel, how you touch, what you think. Everything is, is this is all new and it's all, it's an adventure because I don't know you yet. Yum. And then what starts happening is as we get to know each other more and we, you know, further down the road of discovery, that meaning loses its meaning. Because it's no longer that new and uh, mysterious. So the question is, then what? And so what happens is people typically at that point, they get into a certain routine or a program. They try to do what we did in the past and hope that that's going to bring back the spark. And it doesn't. And I just want to say that you can get into a program even when you're kinky. So it doesn't mean that because you're having kinky sex, it's necessarily adventurous. Because yeah, okay. The meaning, yeah. You know what I mean? If the meaning yeah. is we've done this a thousand times, then the meaning is this is boring and this is familiar. 
So, so just to check there, so, so often, oftentimes if people are experiencing a lack of a sex life, they turn to kinky activities as a way of spicing things up in the bedroom. But what you're saying is um, you can just do repeat the same problem with kinky stuff. Even if you're doing really weird, adventurous, kinky things, you can fall into the same groove. That's right. Because it's not about whether you're doing something kinky or not. It's about whether you're doing something that is familiar and old head and has become part of your routine versus doing something that challenges you to bring whole new parts of yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, so any, any suggestions on how to go about that? Yeah, so I think the first thing is for people to go inside. So usually what happens is at that point, we start looking. I mean, I do the same. Like I'll give a personal example. I was having sex with my partner and I was feeling bored. And my first reaction when I'm bored is to look at what he's doing wrong. <laughs> my partner is an ad. So it's like, oh, he's not present enough. He's not turning me on enough. He's trancing out. Uh, I'm not connecting love, with him. Don't you just love the human tendency to right. first, first right. look for the first fault in the other person? Is, you know, how, <laughs> just how can I blame him? Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. <laughs> and then I had this like irritating little voice in my head that said what about you are you fully present i and hope I you like, managed to make fucker. that voice go away <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's like this, this inner group process between the one of me that is like honorable and has integrity and wants to look at the truth and the other one that's like no let's just let's just keep blaming him it's so much easier but of course it's not as effective and right, and the end result that I want is passionate sex for both of us that is interesting and exciting and mysterious. So, you know, this voice in my head asked me that question, and the truth was that I wasn't being fully present in the sense that what is edgy for me, meaning what is what is harder or what I, what I get like shy about is to fully express my desire, to really show it in my body, in my voice, in the sounds that I make, in the things that I say, in how I get him back involved. In the, instead of just, there was this hidden assumption in me that as the man, it was his responsibility to turn me on. And oh, then it's like, are, no, why? Right? It's as much my responsibility. That's all just all bullshit gender, you know, stupid, yeah. you know, beliefs. And so part of the work is to uncover those hidden assumptions and to be willing to say, what can I do differently? What parts of me that I haven't yet shown can I bring to the table? What hidden fantasies and desires do I have that I'm shy to talk about? What parts of myself am I holding back, etc., etc.? I love the way so, you're talking about the process. It's almost like um, uh, some people find it useful to write down the accusation that you would make of the other person. So, for instance, in this case um, – Dear partner, you weren't present enough uh, with me in our sexual play or whatever the thing was. And then turn it around uh, and even put your own name in. So if I was to turn that one around, I would say, Rog, you are not present enough in sexual play with this partner. And then work out how that is true in some way. Uh, and there's also going to be how it's not true. Um, but, um, yeah, it's a fun little way of uh, taking responsibility for stuff. 
That's right. And one of the things that's so exciting in the beginning is that we are revealing things of ourselves that are new to the other person. And then at some point we stop doing that because it gets safe and familiar. And that's lovely too. It's not that we shouldn't have that. It's just that when we're only safe and familiar with each other, sex tends to get boring at some point. Right point. So how can we reveal more of ourselves in an ongoing way? Oh, tantalizing. Esther mm-hmm. Prill <laughs> um, on on the um, struggle to maintain erotic desire in a long-term relationship, that, that kind of thing about finding the balance. It, it's very much the stuff that you're saying, yeah. Right. Yeah, such a good reference. So, uh, yeah, Anne, let's uh, let's stay with you. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love what you said, Niati. Um, I think uh, absolutely the stuff that uh, – everything you just said, yes. I totally agree with you on, on the things that you said and um, that we get to a point where we stop finding ourselves interesting and sharing that interest and sharing things. I found that I got to a point where in order to go deeper – um, with a partner, I had to share some very vulnerable stuff and I was feeling uncomfortable and that was one of the things that stopped me a couple of times um, and I realised that actually uh, I was not sharing new stuff about me. Um, I was staying yeah, well. safe. And but also I want to put in a, a voice for, um, just, just to take an alternate approach or an alternate voice at the moment, I've known people who's um, uh, like um, – Relationships go through shifts and changes naturally and comfortably, and they and they can and they should, um, and they often do. So just because a relationship has been sexual doesn't mean it has to be and it's a failure if it doesn't ongoingly remain just as high energetically sexual. I think if you both want it to, then great, go for it. Um, but also, I've noticed other. I've noticed. Um, I've known quite a lot of people who have a period of beautiful, intense sexual connection, and then maintain a deep sense of affection and love and intimacy. Uh, maybe I've known people, for example, who are great co-parents and they really want to keep living together and co-parenting, but they both really just don't really want to have sex with each other anymore. That's not that's not particularly where they want to go. And they're quite happy having other sexual partners outside, um, but they really value what they do have. So um, I just want to put in, a, bringing in. Yeah, put in a voice for that as well, that um, mm-hmm. to, to, there's no obligation for every relationship to have high sexual energy all the time either. Mm-hmm. I love it. Such a great point. Great. Um, I uh, if if I might just jump in there a little bit and say um, I, I love what you're saying, Anne, about potentially um, that's an interesting model of polyamory mm-hmm. waiting to happen. Oh, uh, in that this is po- not it, it's <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's only really a problem if you're expecting to have all of the things from one partner. Exactly. Uh, it, the person asking this question um, has the the love they they speak of, but they don't need all those other things. Then who cares potentially? Uh, and I think being honest and open is is really important about what you do have, what you value, you know, where the overlap is, um, what you're both willing to work towards. Um, what what the cost is of working towards certain things. For example, I know people who are 
kind of like the idea of being able to work towards sexual intimacy maybe one day in the future, but they're dealing with so much trauma and, and stuff, personal stuff at the moment, but it's just not a place that they can go at the moment. And again, let's wave a flag for asexuality, yes. particularly in the context yes. of a podcast about sex. And yes. I'm, we all are sex educators. Sex is not for everyone and it's not for everyone all of the time. Asexuality is a fantastic way to be. It really is. So potentially the relationship that's being described by this listener, even outside of poly, uh, it's potentially a perfect relationship. That's a question that needs to be asked. Yep. So, yeah, I, I very much have, have split thoughts, and I appreciate you bringing in that diversity of perspective, Anne, um, and I, I really think that potentially there's there's nothing wrong with that or that it's a doorway to um, uh, polyamory or some other f- relationship model. However, I, like you, Niati, I also can't help pausing to wonder uh, if there's something that happened in the early, earlier stages of the relationship that still is lurking and wants to be looked at. Um, I love the way, Niati, you speak about that first period, which is just so chock-a-block full of uh, happy chemicals and love and it's such an altered state. Um, and I think a lot of the time in those early stages, we're just so excited to be with this new person and subconsciously, it's really easy to project all of our sexuality onto the other person and see them as a flawless, faultless being. However, after about three weeks or maybe three months, or if you're really lucky, three years, uh, that will wear off and it needs to be supplanted or supported or replaced by actual genuine play and commitment. And I think that one of the things that gets in the way of that is a lot of people accumulate just tiny little hurt after tiny little hurt. So that could be anything from it's a Tuesday night after work and you've put the kids to bed or whatever and you stumble into bed and one of you's a little bit interested in sex so they just gently stroke the arm of the other person and the other person just rolls over away a little bit. Um, just those little rejections like that add up over time to become one massive rejection and it can be very hard to offer and approach the other person for sex after a hundred of those little cuts. So potentially uh, working through those rejections and putting a really positive framework in place for how you approach each other and how you ask for what you want and how you um, give the other person what they want and all those sorts of things – Mm, it's amazing how much juice there can be in that work. And just on a really super pragmatic level, uh, in the initial stages of relationship, um, it's somehow you just manage to find an entire weekend just for sex and play and going to galleries. Uh, and then a year down the track, it seems almost impossible to find just a half an hour. So I think if People want sex to be a priority on a long-term basis with a with a, a partner. You've actually got to set aside uh, quality time, and so by quality time, I mean time when you are well slept and when you are absolutely available for the other person, um, not hungover, and all the all of those sorts of things. And you don't even have to use that time for sex. You can use that for quality conversations or having a picnic in the park or, or whatever your thing is but you actually have to wrestle against the rest of your timetable to, to find that space. Otherwise, you wind up with not so much. Mm. I do that with a partner. We have a, a regular weekly thing where the aim is for it to be available for sex if that's where we're both at. And um, it often doesn't go there. 
but it's really nice to have the time that is just set aside for that. Yeah, nice. And that takes the pressure off, well, I'm guessing, well, actually, no, I'm speaking for myself as someone who also does that. Um, it takes the pressure off the sex during the rest of the week. Like you can get away with the occasional um, quickie when you're sort of half asleep and a bit distracted if you know that there's uh, it's, being re- it's being supplanted with uh, good quality sex at some other time. Any other thoughts we have on the question of uh, my partner and I used to have sex, but not so much anymore? Yeah, I um, I just wanted to build on, on some of the things you said, Rog, um, around all the little micro hurts that happen and mm. that start kind of stifling the flow and the energy and the aliveness in the relationship because sex has so much to do with our aliveness and uh, or eroticism. I want to make it bigger than sex. Eroticism has so much to do with our aliveness. And so I think one of the things you, you both are talking about, which I totally agree with, is creating an erotic space, you know, where you're not a mother or a father or a, a business manager or all your other roles, but it's just a space to be together in some erotic way, whatever it is. So I love that. And the thing I wanted to add to that is that when relationships get stuck around sexuality, there are often power dynamics, past hurts, all kinds of other relationship stuff that's in the background that comes out in the bedroom. And it can be really useful to work with that. And... um, all right, so this is like a, what happens in sex as a sort of a doorway, uh, an access point to issues that are going on in the rest of relationships. So true, if you've just shamed me for the horny. way I cooked that meal, I'm hardly going to feel horny towards you in the bedroom. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's all, it's the system. It's all, it all, all the pieces influence each other, right? If, if we have a really hostile uh, atmosphere between us, we're probably not going to have very juicy sex. Mm-hmm. Right. So so we can't separate that out. And and that brings me to the last thing I wanted to say about it, which is that it impacts how we communicate about it, because nobody has ever become turned on by being criticized. Being criticized is not an aphrodisiac. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we all know that. I know it. It's like we all get defensive. It's, you know, it, it contracts yeah. your body rather than opens it up. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm working with is this whole notion of what, what is, how can I be more sexy? And when I mean, what I mean with sexy is alive, uh, spirited, engaged in the way that I communicate. And so, uh, I have an example, like the other day I was talking to my partner and we got into this discussion. We were just, we were going to have sex, but we got into this discussion and it totally derailed us. Mm. <laughs> and I suddenly asked myself, know, but... yeah, <laughs> you know that why yeah. Right. And I suddenly, I noticed my own energy and I noticed I was in the role of interrogator. And he, of course, got defensive. And I suddenly asked myself, like, Oh, do I feel sexy right now in the way that I am talking to him? And I realized, no, I'm totally in my head. I'm totally, you know, uptight. I'm like in my lawyer mode. (laughs) 
I think that would only be fun if you set that up as a scene. That's right. <laughs> if it's a, if it's a consensual scene, it's great, right? And then you can play with all those energies in a sexy way. But mm. usually that's not how it comes out. It's not consensual, right? And it's not part of a play. It's, it's stuff that we're acting out on each other. And so I practice with like saying the same things to my partner, but coming from a place of curiosity, which is much more sexy than interrogation. And it totally changed the atmosphere. And we had great sex after that. Wow. Right. So connecting to what turns you on in the sense of like what makes me feel alive and good about myself in the way that I'm communicating will also more likely turn my partner on. Wonderful. Well, yeah. I think that's uh, that's a that's a great spot to end. Mm. So, thank you, Anne and Niati, for um, those answers. That was thank a really great exploration. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was a juicy topic. And I would love to hear a little more about uh, what the uh, two of you are up to and where people can find you. So, uh, perhaps we'll start with you, Niati. Uh, what do you do? Uh, who are your ideal clients, and where can they find you? So um, I work as a, a sex-positive therapist and a facilitator, and I have a website where you can find me, and it's called alchemyoferos.com, but it's spelled alchemy-of-eros.com. I'm just super excited to work in the sex positive community and I do a lot of work with individual clients and with couples and it's certainly not restricted to sexuality, sexuality and working with sexual issues, sexual shame, um, people wanting to reconnect to their sexuality, um, people working through relationship issues that are often also reflected in their sexuality, um, but also really just personal development and transformation. I'm passionate about working with people who are passionate about their own development, really. It's, it's as, as broad and as narrow as that. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, Anne, uh, what do you mostly do and who are your ideal clients and where can they find you? Yep. Um, I am a relationships coach specializing in non-monogamy. So um, anybody who's uh, struggling with some aspect of polyamory or ethical non-monogamy or any other form of non-monogamy who wants to, um, you know, work toward resolving uh, relationship issues, that's the kind of thing I work with. Um, I work uh, from Melbourne or on Skype. And uh, my the website... Uh, is your relationship tool belt all one word dot com dot au fantastic and, yeah that's, and uh, yeah and I, I also the... run occasional groups around issues like specific issues like jealousy or things like that from time to time yes and your your expertise in that area and your gift to the to the Melbourne community in particular that I've witnessed has been just amazing um. I will. All those contact details will be in the show description notes, uh, and also I'm assuming with the both of you, uh, you both mentioned uh, sexuality and poly. Are uh, you familiar, uh, comfortable taking clients uh, from a diversity of gender uh, representations and sex workers? Yeah. Yes. And do you work with a clients? Any orientation, with... any gender, any identity. Wonderful. And thanks, friends. You've been listening to Curious Conversations About Sex, brought to you by Curious Creatures. You can find us at curiouscreatures.biz, B-I-Z. 
Hey there friends, it's Rog again. Uh, if you liked what we were talking about today, you might be interested in one of my workshops if you're in Melbourne. Uh, the workshop is called Fun Little Sex Games, and it's a whole bunch of little communication-based activities uh, that uh, include touch and also a range of other things um, aimed at helping you to uh, get better at communicating with your partner about what you're interested in and negotiating uh, and just basically having a whole load of fun with your body and your sexuality and taking that to some interesting new spots. Uh, I run versions for couples and for singles and uh, some are scheduled to come up in Melbourne so please jump on the website and have a look if that sounds like your interest. Thanks.